This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 125. Today on our show, it's all about the showboat Majestic. When they would come to a little town, uh, they would stop, and because of the reputation of some other boats, Captain Reynolds would have the local minister and the local sheriff on board, and they would often see the show first so that they could go back to the town and say, okay, there's nothing bad in this. You can bring your kids, your family, all that kind of stuff. The other thing they would check out, especially the minister, was the living arrangements. Tim Perino is the executive director of Cincinnati Landmark Productions. From 1990 to 2013, they performed on and managed the showboat Majestic down there at the public landing. He joins us to talk about growing up in Western Hills, a little bit about elder football, and a lot about running a showboat, as well as the history of such vessels, and more. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to Tim Perino. Cincinnati, she came down Cincinnati. I guess we'll start where we usually start with folks is uh, your Cincinnati bona fides. Are are you from the area originally? Yes, I I was uh, born um in uh and brought home from the hospital to uh price hill and uh, then we moved out to delhi and since then i've lived in price hill and westwood <laughs> okay well oh this is great then um and where'd you go to high school of course the i went to elder high school there you, oh wow there you go proper um, yeah i am i'm i'm west side all the way oh good because we want to talk a lot about that too because um the person i can i can't remember the the uh, some nice person some friend of yours suggested you be on the show and now i forget who that was but um i will thank them on the in the outro uh, of the podcast but anyway bec- and uh, this person suggested you partially because of your work with the local theater and the showboat majestic but also because we've mentioned on the show before that uh the, the west side is is alien to us and um <laughs> Because Josh is from Josh is from Saint Bernard, so he's you know kind of close. Uh, Darren is from Darren lives in Northern Kentucky. He's from south of Canton. I'm from Cleveland. I live in Anderson Township. So um, yeah, it's just like it's it's and I've done trivia over uh, in Western Hills before, and it you know and sometimes I'll in the last go can you do a can you sell a show over there. And I'll be like, oh my god, I want to drive all the way to the Western Hills. It's like twenty minutes, but it just yeah, seems like it's the other. It's like going to the dark side of the moon, you know. It's, to, a, it's a Cincinnati thing. It's been written yeah. for ages. Uh, I remember years well, ago, Cincinnati Magazine did a big piece about it, and it showed, you know, the two halves of Cincinnati, you know, divided by the you know, the Great Wall of China, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's really strange is uh, I'm from Cleveland, and we have an east-west thing that going on too. Similar, it seems like you know one side for the and then Pitts. I used to live in Pittsburgh for a while. 
North Hills, South Hills, kind of a thing, not so much. And, of course, here's Chicago, you have North Side, South Side. And I didn't really realize how great a divide there was here. I was listening to the radio one day after I moved here, and they had these two ladies on. One lived in the east. They were just subbing for somebody, uh, McCoddle or somebody. And they ta- started talking about the east side, west side thing. I thought, what, do, what a ridiculous conversation this is. And then the more I listen, I'm like, oh, it's kind of yeah. like Cleveland where it's – yeah, it, it is a little bit uh, different. And I don't know – and maybe – you can. I'm 54, so uh, you know I've been around a while. I don't know if you can speak. It, it seems to me the the divide comes also from the way the, the two sides of the city were settled after people after the war, probably when people started leaving the city. Uh, it, it seems like Western Hills was kind of populated first, and the Eastern Hills were still more farm. There's still farms in Anderson Township to this day. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think in in many ways uh, that's true. But it was certainly pre-war in a lot of ways that the, the Germans and uh, old Irish and, and some other folks kind of you know left the city center and made enclaves on this side. Italians, you know, same thing. They made enclaves on this side of town um, and didn't quite. They weren't as so as parochial <laughs> on the east side. Yeah, it, it also seems that when people move to this city. They either tend to move into the city proper, or uh, they tend to end up on the eastern side of town, I think. Or maybe over northern Kentucky now. Who knows? It still seems like, you know, Western Hills is still, you know, a lot of people grow up there. And if you grew up there, you tend to move back there. I don't know. Is that is that a... Well, I, I remember when I, when I went to Elder, and, and, not, and, and I don't think it was too many years after I went to Elder, but they did some crazy study where... Like ninety percent of the graduates of Elder High School still lived in the three contiguous contiguous zip codes around the school. Well, I know of a guy I used to work with at City Beat, uh, Roger Pill. He is. Very, very, yeah, I know Roger very well. He works for me. Oh, really? Oh, there you go. We've tried to get him on the podcast to talk elder football, and I think he misunderstood what we wanted. We weren't really looking for, like, to talk about offensive and defensive strategy, but I interviewed him for a magazine article years ago talking about the great football rivalries in the city, and he had mentioned to me, and I didn't, this shocked me, that there's a waiting list for season tickets for elder football. Right. (laughs) Yeah, when I first tried to get elder football tickets, I couldn't get them as a season ticket holder, right? That is crazy. I've never heard of anything like that. I don't think that maybe that's true in Texas, but um, and I know there's a lot of big schools up in Cleveland, uh, but I have never heard of anybody having to be on a waiting list to get season tickets for high school football. But right. yeah, we, well, it's, it's the thing. It's believe me, I I've been now that I've had tickets for all these years, I wouldn't give them up for gold. So how long have you had them? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Uh, Probably at least probably fifteen to eighteen years. Something okay. Like that. And how long did you have to wait to get them? Um, it was a it was a couple of years, um, but it was and I couldn't get them the first time I tried. Wow. So, are there other schools like that in in Western Hills in the west in, on the west side that have that kind of fervent following, or is Elder's kind of an anomaly? Um, you know, I I can't speak for other schools. I I think. Um, the, the, I think the thing about Elder and Elder football, especially, was just it's year in and year out, whether or not they're up or they're down. Whereas I, I think, you know, like like typical, there's some possibly that other schools aren't like that. But I really can't speak to them because I didn't go there. And I, I couldn't. I didn't. Don't know. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's just my sense over here on the east side that you know, Moeller's a pretty big program, everything like that. But it doesn't seem to. I, I'm not sure if there's a waiting list to 
to get their football tickets. So uh, yeah, I don't know either. Right? So after you, what, what do you do these days? What's your what's your day in and day out job? <laughs> well, I'm still the uh, director, executive director of what we call Cincinnati Landmark Productions, which is our theater company, and we're okay. We're still holding on, you know, by the skin of our teeth. Has uh, not that we're producing anything because we can't, we're not allowed, but yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, we're we're a, a theater company that literally we started out here in 1982 with a summer teen theater company that we still call and still have called Cincinnati Young People's Theater. And uh, by the way, many people at Young People's Theater over the years have been from the east side, northern Kentucky, way up north, uh, Indiana. We usually get somewhere between 30 and 40 schools represented every year. And even so, in the back in the old the old days, uh, back then we we had kids from really all over. It's kind of always been a great thing. But that was the, the really the starting of everything in 1982 over here at Westwood Town Hall, which is not far from where I live, um, in the Westwood area. And uh, then, of course, like as things grew, things things went from there. So uh, I know that uh, you were asking, but. Yes, we, we started with Cincinnati Young People's Theater. Then we spent 23 years in charge of the uh, Showboat Majestic, uh, which I have fabulous tales about our years there. Okay, we'll get to those. Uh, um, yeah. I, I want to back up, though, and go, so you graduated from Elder. Where did you go from Elder? So to kind of get a little uh, a sense of direction uh, I, here. I went to um, a little tiny Thomas Moore College in northern Kentucky. Oh, there you go. And I graduated... Uh, uh, the year after, uh, Lynn Myers, the director of Ensemble Theater, and I'm, I always kid her and tell her, you know, I did her first ever directing debut because she was the director of her senior class, you know, show, and I was one of the uh, roles in it. So uh, she and I go that far back, 1977. Okay. All right. So, uh, and then uh, you said you're, you're in 1982. You start the the program, and that involves uh, a bunch of different high schools. Yes, it's a summer theater project for teenagers. You got to be uh, 13 to 19 years old. Uh, we said 19 because the first year I had a kid audition uh, who was 19, and he had just graduated high school. And we said, "Oh, sure." And so when we made the age range, we made it the eens, uh, 13 come. to 19. Um, uh, but yeah, we get kids, and we have auditions, and it's uh, you have to apply to get into the uh, tech side of the operation as well, and it's a oh, whole nice. long summer theater project that's uh, now been around for 39 years, okay. and, uh, and it's, it's we still run it. We've been running it all these years, and it was the first thing that really kind of got us going and got a lot of notice. I mean, we won lots of awards, and we got kids, like I say, from often 40 different schools. And from the entire tri-state region, and we ran it out of uh, Westwood Town Hall, which is a Cincinnati Recreation Center at the time, at least till night until 2000. Actually, we ran it there. And is that still on? I mean, uh, oh, yeah, the yes. yeah. Okay. Well, young people theater. We had to again hold back because of this year. Sure. But I mean, we just did it last year with uh, similarly kids from every area. I mean, sometimes we have kids in that program that are. Uh, We've had years where we've had kids from five different states. Wow. Uh, because you'll get occasionally the kid who's in from the summer staying with, you know, Uncle Aunt or Grandma or whatever it is, and 
uh, they get involved. So, I mean, one year we had, yeah, obviously, Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana. We also had Michigan and Georgia. <laughs> one year we had Illinois and Michigan. So we, we get them from all over. Wow, that's impressive. Uh, yeah. I wonder if you ever crossed paths with... was the success. I mean, the success of Young People's Theater led to us being able to create this program or create this company and do all the things we do today. And um, I wonder if you ever crossed paths with a friend of mine, Troy Hitch. He sounds like something... Yeah. He... Oh, yeah, you... Troy Rowell, sure. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Troy's a super talented guy. Oh, um, yeah. Big time out of Northern Kentucky and uh, yep. done a lot of great stuff with Ken Jones. And yeah, yeah. Cool yeah. yeah, yeah. They uh, they do a they did a thing out in uh, southern Indiana, the uh, uh, Lincoln. Oh, yeah. They were out at Lincoln Amphitheater. Yeah. Santa Claus, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Recommend it, uh, folks, when everything is back to normal. Uh, head out to southern <laughs> Indiana. It's a nice little uh, low-key vacation. So Showboat yeah. Majestic, how does you, do you folks come uh, to be involved with that? Well, like I said, uh, Young People's Theater was started at a recreation center, and it just so happened that the city owned owned the Majestic um, and uh, was under the administration of the Cincinnati Recreation Department, who at the time ran the uh, Bicentennial Commons Park and the Sawyer Point Park. Um, and so the Majestic was part of all that administration. And when... And they always had a contract to run the Majestic. And so when uh, a contractor, uh, the contractor at the time up to 1988 was the University of Cincinnati. And from 88, uh, at, uh, 89 and 90, excuse me, those two years were run by a private uh, contractor. Uh, and, and they, you know, they moved on. They didn't work out for them. And so I put in a proposal to the Recreation Commission itself, which was holding, you know, bids, essentially. I put in a bid to run the thing uh, on, on a contract basis with the city of Cincinnati. And uh, what was kind of fun was, uh, you know, I was I was I had been doing this Recreation Department team program over here at Westwood Town Hall, or at least at the Westwood Town Hall Recreation Center. And uh, I had also, at the time, I was doing a... I was doing a a uh, teen theater project out near St. Louis. It was a 10-day project where we brought in kids literally from 40 or more different states and did a show in 10 days. Um, so I was running that program out in St. Louis, and I was running this program here in Cincinnati. And at that time, I didn't know it, but I had cast the lead kid out in St. Louis. He was the son of the uh, director of recreation in St. Louis. And... So the director of uh, recreation department in St. Louis is on a plane next to the director of recreation in Cincinnati. They're going to some conference, and they're just talking. And the one guy from Cincinnati says to the guy from St. Louis, "Hey, how's your son doing?" He says, "Oh, he, oh he's great. He just he just got a lead in this uh, uh, crazy uh, Italian guy's the director, <laughs> meaning, meaning me. Uh, and and he, he's a lead in Godspell, and I'm going to go see it. I hear it's going to be great. Blah blah blah." And the guy from Cincinnati goes, well, wait a minute. I've got a crazy Italian guy who runs a you know, theater operation for, for teenagers here in Cincinnati. And by talking at a recreation center, and he, they're talking back and forth, and suddenly he realizes it's the same guy. Obviously, me and the, and then St. Louis, I was the same guy. And he goes, he goes, well, well, you know, this guy's like a regional theater guy. We, we're going to give him the, we hope to give him the contract at the Majestic. So when we went into the the big proposal meeting to the commission, you know, he sits down and. They, we're discussing qualifications, and, and he then brings up the story and says, you know, to the commission, 
uh, this guy's not just local. You know, he's he's all over the place, and uh, I hear great things from him from the recreation department out in uh, St. Louis. And so I think that sealed the deal, and we got the contract, and we were there from 1990 to 2013. Wow. So, And the uh, showboat Majestic is a National Historic Landmark, isn't it? Correct. National Historic Landmarks are the highest designation you can get. Um, there are only about 7,000 actual National Historic Landmark things, um, whereas, like, you see the Historical Register, you know, things on the Historical Register, there's about 77,000 plus on those. As a matter of fact, that grows every year because things. the first step is always to get on the register, and then eventually if you can get up to the highest status. But, yeah, the Majestic is the actual, and today this is really true, it is the last uh, historic showboat in America and really, America is the only country with a history of this this traveling showboat uh, motif where entertainment will come to all these little towns via the river. Um, and uh, I did a lot of work and study on, on, on showboats and stuff. And, uh, you know, there used to be just scores of these things. And today, this is, there's only really one left, and that's the Majestic. Everything else is either a modern sort of... Like, if you go to the General Jackson showboat down in Nashville, fantastic, yeah. but really fantastic boat. But it was built in, I think, the 80s or something, and it, was, it, it, it wasn't ever a, a traveling a historic boat. It's a showboat uh, in, in Nashville, really. Um, whereas, you know, these, these little showboats that travel, travel town to town and, and really are part of the Americana of the river system, um, this is the last one. As a matter of fact, there was one that was still existing, and I actually had seen a show on it back in the early, early 90s or late 80s in St. Louis, in, uh, Charles, excuse me, St. Charles, Missouri. It was called uh, the uh, Goldenrod, and she was privately owned up to about, I think it was five years ago, and she burned like a matchstick uh, one night in the middle of the night. And uh, so the Majestic's the only thing left. Wow. And the Majestic was built, was it in the 20s, was it? Or was it, is no, it older? 1923. Okay. And, and hence, it was really kind of one of the last ones built. You know, uh, the Golden Rod was a 1909 boat. Um, and some of these boats, you know, the earliest showboats were built, obviously, as soon as uh, steamboats became a, a possibility in the early 1800s. And even before that, they were just, you know, barges that floated down the river and, uh, you know, were rebuilt and floated down again the next year from, like, Pittsburgh all the way down to New Orleans. Um, but once Steamboat came in, obviously, you could travel up and down the rivers. So. What was the uh, showboat era, roughly? Oh, boy. Well, the, the heyday would be the late 1800s and into the very, very early 1900s. Okay. Because even by 1923, when the Majestic was built, there was only a few left, including Bryant's family showboat, which was another boat that came here to Cincinnati a lot. Um, Billy Bryant wrote kind of the book on showboating called Children of Old Man River. And uh, his daughter, Betty, who literally was born in the old proverbial trunk, literally born on a, on the showboat, uh, went on stage when she was like, you know, eight days old as the baby being carried across the frozen river in Uncle Tom's cabin. And uh, she went on to be a produ uh, performer there, and then she actually came over and was a friend of ours. I have her book signed by her, but she was a friend of ours, came on board several times. Betty Bryant, you know, literally a child of the river and child of showboats, um, as well as the family that built the Majestic, the Reynolds family. They were good friends with the Bryants, and I've had all them on board at, at different times when I was down on the boat. And where was the Majestic built? 
built uh, well, it's built in Pittsburgh. Um, That's really. what I thought. Okay, and and then uh, came out of port every year at Point Pleasant, West Virginia, right there where the Kanawha River meets, meets the Ohio. Um, and just as you can imagine, it, you know, it, it, it in the winter time they kind of boarded or not boarded up, but you know, packed her all up for the winter, and then the summer they would de-ice her and get her all set up, and uh, down the river they'd go, and and uh, that boat went as far as Cape Girardeau. Uh, on the uh, is that on the Mississippi or Missouri? I'm not sure. Which. Um, but all the way down, like the Kentucky River, all the way up to Scioto River. Wow! Up the uh, Allegheny and the Monongahela, yeah, the Green River. Uh, the Majestic's the biggest boat and only showboat ever to go down the Green River down to Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. Wow! And if you've ever been down the Mammoth Cave, there's a boat landing below the. The, the cave on the Green River, and it shows these boats that, that would come to that landing. Today it's just a little tour boat. Um, but the Majestic made it all the way down there because it, it all the way down there in 1925 because that was the Floyd Collins story. You yes. Know, you think about the guy stuck in the cave? Yeah, right yeah, in junior high. Yeah. Yeah, Mammoth Cave became this huge tourist attraction. And Captain Reynolds, the fellow who built the Majestic and ran it, said, well, yeah, let's go where the crowds are. So they actually pushed that that boat over a sandbar to get to the landing below Mammoth Cave and then set up shop there for several months because of the crowds coming to Mammoth Cave to see where Fort Collins died. <laughs> wow. So what kind of entertainment is on a showboat back in those days? Is it just like vaudeville but floating or is it a little more family-oriented entertainment? What kind of th- – I imagine a lot of singing and dancing going on, but what specifically what, – what's a typical show like? Yeah, well, the, you know, the the – Especially um, Captain Rounds, he, he was very much a you know clean kind of guy. I mean, he he never wanted anything that a family couldn't see on his boat. So that it was not a especially the majestic. You know, there were some crazy places that were probably a little weird, but most of the main showboats were all a kind of a clean show, as it were. Um, anyway, but you're right. They do melodramas, you know, usually with a lesson of some kind about alcohol and, you know, things like that. Um, temperance plays like the drunkard and stuff like that. And then they would have what was called oleo or oleo acts, or just, as you say, it's like a vaudeville thing. And the often the oleo was named for the, the rolling curtain, so it was that bit where they'd drop the curtain and somebody would out, out in front of the, the curtain would play some music or do something or they'd change cards, you know, almost like burlesque. And they'd roll up the curtain again and then they'd have another act, which would be a juggler or would be, you know, uh, somebody doing a recitation, uh, some comedy routine, a uh, dance number, a lot of dance numbers, a lot of music. So a uh, combination of the, of the melodramas. And the oleo acts were the kind of entertainment you saw in the original showboating era. Um, that progressed over time, uh, you know, as you just started doing whatever you can. I mean, we did all kinds of shows, regular musicals, reviews, vaudeville-type shows. Uh, but certainly that was the, the beginning. The beginnings were always those kind of, you know, uh, pay the rent or I'll, or I'll you know, Kill the girl and or kill the the, the hero and I'll be this this nightly uh, terrible villain. <laughs> so I imagine what did in the showboats was probably because uh, it's the 1920s we're talking is the the moving pictures and uh, the wireless. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I, I think in some ways, you know, uh, uh, the majestic was amazing for having really survived all the way to. Uh, the beginning of the Second World War, as far as an actual living and paying operation that you know supported his family, 
uh, Catmull's family. But yes, uh, think about it. I mean, before movies, before wireless, uh, even with the advent of radio, it wasn't so bad. Um, but, you know, if you're a little town along some stretch of river, I don't care if you're in Ohio, Kentucky, wherever, and uh, you were pretty starved for entertainment every year. You know, I mean, and you're thinking about the 20s especially. Um, the biggest thing that would happen would be a barn raising maybe and a, you know, ice cream social or something. Uh, but when the showboat came to town and it was all lit up because it, you know, electric lights generated by the generator on board and music playing and they did a little parade down the middle of the street to announce their arrival. I mean, it was exciting. And it was the biggest thing that happened in that little town. Uh, the story is Captain Reynolds often would pull his boat in on a boat dock. And uh, you wouldn't see a, a house or a town anywhere. But he knew that you know, just over the hill somewhere there was a town. And they'd play their calliope, that big old you know steam whistle organ, on the roof. And this thing could be heard for like 10 miles. And if you played that thing all day, by the end of the day, about, you know, sunset, you'd see all people coming down in wagons and, you know, flivers and Model A boards and whatever hell they had. And they all came down and uh, would see a show in the showboat. He might get one night there because it wasn't exactly a metropolis, but he would he would get a, a stop in along the river. And uh, everybody went home and said, oh, my God, the, you know, the showboat came again this summer. So it was a big, big, big thing when the showboat came. Yeah. I think another fun thing real quick about, about um, especially the Majestic, uh, uh, this was told me about the family, but, you know, when when they would come to a little town, uh, they would stop, and because of the reputation of some other boats, um, Captain Reynolds would have the local minister and the local sheriff on board, and they would often see the show first so that they could go back to the town and say, okay, there's nothing bad in this. You can bring your kids, your family, all that kind of stuff. The other thing you were, uh, that they would check out, especially the minister, um, was the living arrangements uh, because, you know, they were theater people and they were known to be, you know, <laughs> derelict in their morals. Um, not Show morals, people. That was their, <laughs> their impression. But uh, like Reynolds, he would hire New York actors uh, for the summer, but uh, he would—he only had three what they call state rooms. <laughs> we would call them closets, but they were tiny little rooms with little bunk beds in it. And but he would only hire married couples, so he'd have three state rooms, and he'd hire six married couples. And when the minister or the sheriff came on board, they would have their marriage license on the wall of their room, so when they checked them out, they could show that they were married. Wow! Yeah, you can't can't take a chance to show people. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that from experience. <laughs> I, me- I remember there was uh, Letterman used to used to do these short films on his late night show, and uh, I forget what the one of them was called. But he it, the premise of one of them was he was just he was a, a living in this woman's house. It was a, he was he was just a boarder, and P- Paul Schaefer came in to, and to, to visit him, and they were talking about some scheme. And the landlady said, "Are you, you guys are being a little loud?" And and he goes, "Oh well, we're gonna." We're, We'll wrap up in just a few minutes, and she walks up the stairs and goes, I knew I shouldn't have rented to show people. But. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, so how does the Majestic end up in Cincinnati, like per, on a permanent basis? Well, uh, yeah, the um, Captain Reynolds at the uh, beginning of the Second World War, let's go all the way back there, he um, put the boat, you know, uh, ashore, and he kept it as 
a uh, um, uh, a station for uh, for folks who needed help or whatever in uh, Henderson, West Virginia, which is right across the, the river from uh, Point Pleasant. And while he was doing that, he became an officer of the Army Corps of Engineers, and he was in charge of river security for a certain stretch of the river because they shipped so much war material up and down the river that, you know, he was the guy making sure all that stuff would get through securely because they were always scared of, of uh, you know, uh, sabotage. Well, after the war, then it was like his kids were all growing up. The rest of his family, you know, didn't want to be showboaters, per se, out on the river every year. Uh, and he didn't really quite know what to do. So he entered into a deal in the late 40s with uh, first Hiram College, uh, which is a, a, up in Hiram, Ohio, and then um, eventually, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the other, there's one, oh, Kent State, and eventually then Indiana University. So a series of colleges hired him to take students out for the summer, and, and they would literally charge this as credit, summer theater credit for theater students. Um, and, and that happened and, and was uh, uh, through all the way through 1959, Captain Reynolds owned and operated the boat, and these colleges would rent it out for the summer, and he kept his operation alive. Oh. But in, in 1959, he passed away, and Indiana University uh, owned the boat at that, bought the boat at that point, and then um, they ran it all the way up to night, out on the river until 1965. So it would sail. But, but in 65, there was the same legislation that affected the Delta Queen. There was something called the Safety at Sea Act, and it actually forbade uh, wooden-hauled vessels, which a showboat would be at the time, um, from transporting people overnight uh, along the river system. That's why um, uh, Delta Queen had to have get an exemption to do that. Um but the Majestic was definitely was going to not get an exemption. They were big and you know powerful enough. So at 65, the, in 1965, so the 66 and 67 season, IU tied the boat up at Jeffersonville, Indiana, and did shows just right on the bank there. And they wanted to sell it at the end of the 67 season. So in, uh, somewhere between there and and I'm pretty sure it was in that 67 year, but they didn't bring it to Cincinnati until 68. Um, uh, they sold it to the University of Cincinnati. And at that time, UC was an actual city university. It was owned by the city of Cincinnati. It was not a state uh, university. So um, they brought it to Cincinnati in 19, fall of 1968. And at that point, the University of Cincinnati ran it from 68 to 88. Okay. And then and that's when you folks got involved. Well, we got it in 1990. Like I oh, said, 90. it was a two-year interim where a private company uh, uh, made the contract with the city. And and there was a lot of changes over the years with UC. You know, UC went from a, a city university to a state university in that time. And eventually then the Majestic became directly, well, still owned by the city. I mean, the city didn't, didn't essentially uh, give it over to UC when it became a state school. Uh, the city kept it at that point. And then... But UC still used it under, like, say, contract. It was, you know, a lot of convolutions. But eventually, yes, and by 1990, there the contract was open again, and uh, our little success with our Young People's Theater, which was actually, I think, a fairly big success, um, well, yeah. uh, got us the contract for the next 23 years. 
So you guys show up and you, you're taken over running the showboat Majestic. What do you have? What kind of plans do you have? What happens next? What? <laughs> well, I think the first year was a lot of learning. <laughs> uh, we learned how far the river could go up and down. That was for sure. And we learned what shows we should or shouldn't do as far as, you know, for a summer crowd. Um, we began bringing in a combination of other people's shows on our own. We learned soon after that that we should produce our own shows uh, exclusively because whether it was good or it was bad, it, 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 it had to be on us. You know, if we brought in a show from someone else and it was not a, a good show, it's kind of a stinker. It's kind of hard to say to a patron, well, we're sorry, but we weren't in control of that show. So, you know, if we we're going to stink it up or if we we're going to have a success, we we're going to do it ourselves. Um, so by the second year, we were producing almost the entire season ourselves, and then after that, we produced all the seasons ourselves. Um, the big crazy part, of course, was we were on a boat, and, um, uh, you know, the river could be up one day, down the next, uh, freezing cold in the winter. Um, it was crazy. I mean, it was 23 years of, of a what I used to call playing pirate, you know, every day you kind of had to go down, put your cutlass in your teeth and climb something and free something up or fix something or oil something or pump out something or, or, you know, fix the, this, that, the other thing. But, uh, it was a hell of an adventure. It was a lot of fun. I got, again, some, <laughs> a lot of did, crazy stories. Did, did you ever lie awake and think uh, at night and think, hope that thing isn't springing a leak, you know, this, 1920s well, era. Yeah, there were there were alarms on it for that. The, the other thing, and that alarm in general. But the big thing was you you did lie there at night, and uh, early on, what you had was a uh, telephone number, and you called it, and when you knew it was going to rain or did rain, and you knew it rained east of us, and it was like you know pushing pushing the river upwards, or if you knew it was falling, didn't matter either way, it was dangerous. Uh, you did lie awake at night, and you would call this telephone number, and it was a computer voice on the Roebling Bridge, and it would tell you the height of the river at that moment. And in the old days, you had to call that, say, every hour and start getting a rate of rise or rate of fall, you know, did your quick little math, and then decide, knowing where you left the boat, uh, if you had to move the boat out or move the boat up uh, the shore, depending on the rise or the fall, uh, and how much time he had. You only had about two and a half feet of rise or fall that you could stand before you either got beached or marooned. Huh. So that's not a lot of river rise or fall. And, and I'll use the example, you know, uh, we had many, many floods and many, many crazy times. But in 1997, I was going to ask, yeah. Flood hit, yeah. I mean, uh, the river that day was supposed to fall four feet it was at 30 feet when the day started and it was supposed to be down to 26 and instead it went from 30 to 54 and the next day of course it went to 65 um and that was literally four of us in two-man teams sleeping on the boat when we had to taking care of it so it didn't float off the new orleans as a pile of you know, lumber um <laughs> And eventually, of course, we had to just get off and thank God for, you know, Alan Bernstein, at, Bernstein over at uh, B&B Riverboat. They came over and got us because we were stuck out in the middle of the river on top of this boat praying that the, the cables would hold. So uh, I became a river kid. <laughs> so you wait. So you had to you basically had to abandon ship and hope that the 
until the waters receded that that it wouldn't that it wouldn't go wouldn't go anywhere. Like uh, what happened? What was the one restaurant? The watermark or was it that that broke free? Oh, there was yeah. There's plenty of broke free. Uh, yeah, what was that uh, down there? Sorry, um, out of my brain. It I was a pretty remember. harrowing story. Yeah, someone will. Uh, people oh, are. Yeah, that was uh, that that whole complex broke free. That was yeah, pretty, pretty scary. Yeah, and actually, what we had done during the time that we were on board, besides cranking and dealing with it, we were doing stuff like that. We had people on shore, and we were laying on more steel cable to just hold it in place, just pray that you could get there. And you know the the. It was wild. It was wild. We had well, cables attached to trees on the shore holding the boat on, or else it was going to float off. People, I don't think people understand the power of water. And you can imagine, I have a creek in my backyard. Uh, it's at the bottom of a ravine. And it's only maybe three feet wide. And I've tried to put things so you could, like, cross it. Put You know, I got these big stone blocks from the, from Home Depot and put that in there and put things over to try to make it. And I go down there, and they're, they're washed down the creek. And that's a little three-foot creek. You can yeah. imagine the power of the Ohio River oh, pushing yeah. on this boat. I mean, I don't think people appreciate, you know, the magnitude of, uh, of that. And, uh, yeah. Do you remember the story a few years back? Uh, you know, the, the Majestic was on the public landing, and they were running a salt truck on the public landing because everything was iced over. It was one of those crazy, you know, crazy ice days. Yeah. And the, the salt truck, we came in, and the salt truck was way low on, down on the landing. And we thought this was really odd because we didn't drive down there. We walked down and slid down to get huh. on board to check the boat out. And also we realized, you know, that truck was he was trying to get traction to get up and away from the river and every time he started his wheels it would slide a little farther down oh geez he was, he was in trouble and he actually abandoned that 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 truck and that truck slid into the river of course the river was also coming up so it came up and kind of ate him huh. and then you know the, so here's a salt truck i mean totally underwater it went underwater in the river and and it was just, oh, say, 50 yards down from where the Majestic was. So luckily that was downstream. It wasn't going yeah. to you know, impact the Majestic. But uh, it was still, oh, I don't know, I would say probably a 1,000 yards uh, to the uh, east of the Roebling Bridge. But when they found that south, south truck, it was down at the Roebling Bridge. That's crazy. So, so it moved a 1,000 yards. A fully loaded salt, salt truck still gets shoved all the way down. So when you're saying you had to move the boat sometimes, you know, adjust a little bit, did it move under its own power or did you have to get something else to move it? Yeah, the, the Majestic, uh, again, uh, it, well, first of all, in 1969, the city and the UC and whatnot put a metal hull underneath the wooden hull. So that made it a little more, you know, steady. It was certainly more stronger and could take more things than an old wooden hull would. Um, but attached to that, that hull were barge winches, the big hand-cranked monster steel cable winches. And that's how you controlled where you were in the river. You had to, and it was a five-line complex series of, of lines. Some pulled you out, some pulled you in, and uh, you had to hit them just right to make like the back end kick out or the front end kick out. Plus it had a spud pole, which is a, just what it sounds like, a tall metal pole that was your anchor, um, which was almost useless when you're up on the concrete of the public landing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it did cause some drag. It usually kept, it, when you're on the landing, it didn't keep the boat from going out, but it would keep the boat from coming in, so that was lucky. Because, again, there was nothing worse than beaching it. 
Because if the river ran up underneath you and you were up on the landing and the boat would catch that concrete, you know, that, that was potentially in the end uh, devastating. It could, could really ruin the whole boat. Wow. Uh, well, just the boat wasn't built, you know, 1923 wood boat inside of a metal hull. Those stresses, if you're caught on a corner of the landing and everything is bending to one direction or something, it's yeah. going to sink it. Yeah. Um, so, what other crazy stories were there apart from avoiding floods? <laughs> well, uh, here's Shows. The, uh, this is what I tell, and in, in, uh, um, a few people may not appreciate it. I, I certainly did. Um, we did, uh, for a few years, we did a Christmas show. And uh, we would try to get in before we had to shut the boat down for the winter, you know. Uh, and we were uh, doing, it was the very end of the show, and it was December, whatever, I think 21st, I think, and it had gone down to like pretty, it was 20 or 15 degrees the night before. And, uh, but the boat itself was okay. And uh, when, you, when you're on a boat like that, there is a 700-gallon tank. That tank is where everything goes when you flush the toilet. I'm being very discreet here. Okay. Uh, and then in that tank was a pump. And when, you know, if you've ever seen a float tip switch on a, on a, like a sump pump, it's like that, where once you get X amount of stuff in the tank, the pump kicks on and it pumps this out. Well, on the Majestic, we were attached to the uh, main, you know, city sewer system via a long, long tube, you know, a long uh, uh, a hose that went up in troughs underneath the public landing and into the main sewer system. So it was the end of the show and somebody runs up to my office upstairs, which, which was kind of fun to have an office. But anyway, they come running up and they say, Tim, it really stinks in the theater. I said, what the heck? That doesn't make sense. I run down and, Oh my God, it's really does stink. And what I can hear as I hit the front deck is the sound of that pump running. Cause I, you could hear that pump running if you knew what you're listening for. Yeah. And so I threw open the, the doors to the front deck, and I jumped down into the hall, and sure as heck, the pump is running. But the problem is the pump was pumping everything in the tank out into the main hall underneath the audience. Ew. <laughs> because what had happened was is that pipe way up on the landing, way up there, had frozen. And the pump went, and the pipe said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) and so down in the hall, the pipe burst. And so this thing was pumping 700 gallons of, you know what, underneath the audience as, (laughs) as they were watching the end of the show. So I'm down there and, and, you know, the guy who knows things, I know where the pump shut off is and it's, it's under there, but luckily it's not in the line of fire as it were from the, from the pump. So I'm reaching out for the pump uh, handle shutoff on the on the electric box when the show finishes and the audience starts coming out. And my staff, who are standing above me, decide, uh-oh, and they closed the, the hatch over my head as I'm reaching for the, the uh, pump shutoff. And so... I finally, I find the light switch. There's also a light switch down there. I turn that on. I turn off the pump. The pump stops. And so now I'm not pumping all this stuff into the, into the hole under the audience feet. And I can hear them up as they're walking out going, oh, it's a terrible smell. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
just at that moment, I'm thinking, okay, all is well. And all of a sudden I hear, bum, 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 bum. All that pipe, like I said, way at the top had been pumped against, right? So it was full of stuff that tried to get pumped out through the sewer system and ran into a blockage. Well, everything from the blockage back down now comes running back down the, the pipe and bazoom, <laughs> throws all over the bottom underneath the hole where I am at the time. Oh, jeez. Oh, my God. So we, we had to call in a whole, you know, hazmat. It was terrible. But I got out alive, and I did not have uh, any form of hepatitis, and everything was fine. I was not ever hit directly with any of the stuff, but it was like, this is not what I went to drama school for. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was quite a drama, though, indeed. Yeah, um, yeah and at, well, at that point, you probably figured, well, what's the worst that could happen now? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, well, yeah, I'm trying to think if that was before. That was before. We did have one one time when uh, we did break. Uh, we got, there was a little tornado that hit Mother God, Mother of God Church in uh, Covington, and we got kind of the tail end of that little tornado. And so, I mean, that was right across the, you know, the river from us, and we got the kind of tail end of that whip, and it hit the back of the boat, and it pulled it out, and it broke the back cable. The back cable was a five-eighths-inch steel cable and broke it and threw the boat underneath uh, what is today the Taylor Southgate Bridge. At the time, I think it was the L&N. Um, and uh, that, so that was the only time we broke loose, as it were. Uh, we had five lines on and one broke, but unfortunately it was the, it was the back one and the, all the front lines then got twisted. Uh. And thrown. Um, and, and what the scary part about that one was, uh, I had a guy on board. He called me, and I was because uh, I was heading back to the boat. I was on a, at a meeting, and when I got there, I I put on my chest waders so I always kept chest waders to be able to get through the water and stuff and deal with stuff. So I walked up the ramp, and I had a um, big uh, a crescent wrench in my hand because we were going to pull the cables to reset them. And I dropped it, and as it landed on the metal deck and scooted across the deck, sparks ran all across the deck. And all of a sudden we realized that not only had this sheared the back cable, but the front twisting had sheared the three electric lines coming into the boat. Uh, oh, geez. And this is, you know, you know 483 phase electric. And uh, I, everybody just went, nobody touches nothing. <laughs> everybody get on a wood surface or you know, if you got rubber heels or whatever, nobody touch anything. And uh, from there, we yelled to the people who were already there on the landing and told them to go up, turn off the power. And they turned off the power and then we could work on the boat. But, you know, there were several times where, honestly, something crazy could have happened and killed us all. I mean, we had a night where the front cable broke, but we didn't break loose, but the front cable underneath the ramp broke. And that keeps you from going, that, that actually keeps you from going in and out in the front. And we had a big uh, towboat helping keep us in place while we fixed that cable. But he came in and he hit the boat so hard in the front that the big metal ramp in the front hopped up out of its saddle and shot across the deck in like literally a half a second. And everyone just happened to be standing in a place where that thing didn't hit them because we were all on the front deck. And honestly, if it had hit any of us or hit all of us, we'd all been dead or at least limbless from the knee down. Holy cow. Yeah, again, stuff we didn't teach in drama school. I was going to say. Um, so 2013 rolls around. Uh, what happens then? Um, 
I mean, you know, I... (laughs) I'm 63 now. Anyway, it was a kind of a young man's game uh, okay. in a lot of ways. All these crazy stories, I'll tell you that. I mean, besides that, you know, we were also producing, you know, shows from April through almost October every year. Uh, but in the meantime, we had opened up the Cobdale Center for Performing Arts, which uh, was a, as a West Side movie house, the Cobdale Cinema, so we had bought in 2002. And so we were running a, you know, fall, winter, spring season at the Covedale. And we were running our summer season at the showboat. Now, really, running the showboat was never a very profitable operation. You know, it was, it was a very small theater, and you could only make X amount of money. And it, it, was, it was difficult to all this time and space and energy. So, I mean, at times, it just became between how much money you weren't making and how many nights you could stay up, you know, checking the river forecast. You eventually, it, I always said it was a, there was a time to go to the river and do these the fun stuff that we did and be play pirate. And there was a time to go away from it. By thirteen, it was a time let's go away from it. And we had started this operation where we had this, you know, Covedale in the fall, fall winter spring, and we thought where could our our new summer theater be? And that's when we uh, created the idea and began to uh, fundraise and build the Incline Theater which we opened in 2015. So we had two other locations by then, or we had one other location, and then we then uh, uh, created another one by 20, it opened in 2015, but we started in 2013. And that's kind of when we said, okay, you know, we'll we'll go on dry land again. (laughs) So what's become of the Majestic? Well, the Majestic uh, for a long time sat there, uh, at least I would say three or more years, might have been four, um, and the city literally could not find a person to operate it. And you know, some of the stories I tell you can tell you why. Um, and uh, there's a couple attempts of people trying to, you know, see if they could do it. Uh, eventually, they, they sold it on auction. They kind of had to do a lot of uh, research on what you can do with National Historic Landmarks. And eventually, they could sell it. And it's now in, in uh, private ownership uh, out uh, east of uh, Cincinnati, um, out in the West Union area, Manchester, I believe, Ohio. Uh, private owner. Um, I know he's done some nice work on it to fix it up. Uh, he's he's young, and he's willing to play pirate apparently. And he's <laughs> been having the the dickens of a time occasionally. He contacts me about how do you do this and how do you do that. Um, he wants to open it up, and um, I know they're having some sort of like party around july 4th uh, near down wherever the boat is on on the river they're having like a festival uh now i don't know if they're going to be able to do the festival based on the covid restrictions and stuff but that was the plan at one time okay um i've not been out there i wanted to get out there he keeps inviting me and i keep saying i'll get out there i'll get out there but it's about hour and a half two hours from downtown cincinnati okay oh so the, the boat's not there anymore I don't even no, know. Not on the city of Cincinnati. No, I didn't, I didn't think so. It's been, you know, uh, what from 1968 to 2013 on the on the Cincinnati Riverfront, and before that, it like the Bryant family boat, it was a yearly visitor to the the landing at Cincinnati. Okay. So it had been coming here since 1923. So it really was a fixture. Wow. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, 
I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about all this, because I'm sure lots of folks uh, were curious. Um, at, at this point of the program, if you've listened before, we, we asked the guests to choose a, uh, a coupon code, and they can use this at uh, both CincyShirts.com and our sister site, OldSchoolShirts.com, to save 20%. So I will let you, uh, Tim, pick the uh, coupon code for this week's episode. I assume this is a word? Yeah, could be word or phrase, word or short okay. phrase. Okay, I mean, I, I just think majestic is fine. Majestic, great. All right, super. And then, uh, and and then as for you, we usually give our guests a T-shirt. So I'll I'll email you after this is over, and uh, I will send you two links because our, our sister site. Since you're a football fan, I don't know if you remember this. You're uh, since you're we're around the same age, roughly. Uh, in the Memphis uh, uh, United States Football League team was called the Showboats. And we have a t- oh. we have a T-shirt of that, so you can either oh, pick great. you can either pick that or pick one from uh, or just say I'd rather have a Cincy shirt, so and I'll send you a, a, a digital gift card, and then you can whichever. I'll, yeah, yeah. Exciting. There you, you go. Yeah, <laughs> so terrific. Well, again, um, and anything you want to promote, how can people find Cincinnati Landmark Productions? Facebook, uh, social media's website. Correct. Just just Google that, and you'll get all those things. Um, uh, again, at this point, we run the Covedale Center for Performing Arts, the Incline Theater, the, the, the Warsaw Federal Incline Theater. And also, we now, uh, uh, part of our Landmark Productions is Madcap Puppets, Madcap Touring Theater, Madcap Education oh, Center, okay. and of course, Cincinnati Young People's Theater. So it's a conglomerate of all these, these theatrical programs and different uh, brands and different uh, demographics. Great, super. Well, again, appreciate you taking the time today, and we'll have to have you on uh, some other time. Talks about you know theater in town in general, and not just the. Yeah, uh, the yeah. Oh, I got stories from anything. You, you name it. <laughs> All right, super. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye. Why do stage-struck maidens clamor to be acting in the drama? We've heard say you are gay night and day. Go away. Tim Perino, that's Life Upon the Wicked Stage from the musical Showboat. Uh, sometimes the most interesting stories are right there in front of you. Uh, well, or sometimes they're in front of you, sometimes they've, they've sailed off. So that, that ship has sailed figuratively and literally, I guess. But uh, still a great story. Thanks to Mary Berger Murphy for suggesting Tim. Uh, what a great guest Tim was. We need more like that. And speaking of, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast or someone you'd like to hear again on the podcast, we can always have somebody back if there's something we didn't cover. Uh, just email us, podcast at cincyshirts.com and put podcast guest in the subject line and then just tell us you know, who you'd like to hear on the show or who you'd like to have us have back on the show, whichever. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. If you haven't already, check out those Cincy Shirts podcast archives from baseball great Johnny Bench to actress Amy Yazbeck. There's just tons and tons of great episodes back there, of course. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. You can find all of their music at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find Benji Tees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Portland, Seattle, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Lots of defunct teams like old football and basketball teams, old restaurants, stores, malls. 
malls, uh, you name it, radio stations. It's like Cincy shirts, but for those towns, of course. And again, the promo code for this episode is Majestic. All lowercase, all uppercase. You can alternate or upper and lowercase if you like, if you want to be silly with it, but it'll work no matter what. And that'll like 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or use it once at each site. How about that? Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in C-Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye